This is NBR's Live from the Hive, a compilation of the week's top stories straight out of the beehive. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. Last week's official election result confirmed the National Party cannot form a government without the help of New Zealand First. I'm joined by New Zealand First leader Winston Peters. I take it you probably weren't surprised by the final results? Well, we knew on election night, the 14th of October, that this is the big, was the, uh, the likely most certain outcome of that uh, election. But it took uh, three weeks for people to get their head around the mathematics. It's not complex. I know, and I'm wondering because um, the National Party leader, Christopher Luxon, kept on talking about having to wait for that before. But wasn't it possible to have actually, if you like, fast-tracked talks on coalition beforehand? Not if people had the view that they had. They thought they did not know the result. New Zealand first view on the 14th of October was that we did know the result. That would stand after the special votes were counted. And you're quite right, but uh, if others have a different view, you just have to wait. And the others have that different view because they mm. made it clear through the campaign that their preference was not to do a deal with you. That's does, true. That, does that make the relationship more difficult now? Well, you could take that view, but in the end, uh, that's the nature of politics. Uh, people expect to be forgiven uh, for the premature or uh, perhaps um, undiplomatic positions they took. And you're in a forgiving mood? When I say that, my colleagues know that uh, the public expect in a democracy uh, that there'll be a stable and government formed and as fast as possible without selling in things down the drain, so to speak. So it's uh, complex, yet in many parts of it are simple in that uh, final outcome. You can stand back and say, I don't like this, I don't like that. But in the end, the public do trust you in a changed environment to ensure we do have a democracy and uh, that we get things uh, resolved in a timely fashion without being rational premature. But remember this, uh, countries like Germany would take five months longer than us to do that job. And I just wish some of the people in the mainstream media would not keep on saying that the time we are taking is long. It's ridiculously short compared to other countries. And we have a caretaker government in place. I mean, things mm. still keep on running without... Yeah. So you'd rather get it right than rush it, right? Well, I think we can get it right and uh, make sure that we've got it right in a timely fashion. But it's not long when you're asking people to wait uh, a matter of uh, you know, less than maybe two weeks. Because the switch... So less you think less than two weeks from now in terms of potentially... Well, I certainly think that we will have it resolved before the next two weeks, most definitely. What all the parties involved keep on talking about strong and stable government. What what does strong and stable government look like? <laughs> strong and stable government means that uh, the parties are harmoniously working together to deal with the critical issues which decided this election. They were the cost of living, which was a massive consideration for the huge number of New Zealanders, followed by the, the concern for law and order, gangs and uh, illegal drugs. And the other one is the Hardy Annual, which was always, for some time in this country's history, the health system and health delivery. Then there were a whole lot of other issues as well. You know, the lack of um, one country, one nation, one flag, 
and one vote being of the same, or what I might call the introduction of inverted racism and apartheid policies in this country. And they can fob it off as long as they like, but that's what was happening here. So these are critical issues that we've got to make progress on now and as fast as possible. And on all those issues, the Three Parties National Act and New Zealand First, I think, agree on the kind of direction, don't they? But maybe where the issues are is just exactly how the detail of policy to deal with them? Well, we're working our way through that. How do some people arrive at certain solutions, whether those solutions are valid, whether they, whether they will actually work, or the proposing of those solutions will actually work. These are things we've got to thrash out through the next few days. What about, I mean, you know, bottom line, I mean, one thing maybe where there is an issue of contention would be the age of eligibility for New Zealand superannuation. Well, if we're running a um, much better economy with a far greater GDP growth rate, then this matter would not be of concern. But even as we speak, uh, the incidence of costs uh, against, say, countries like Germany uh, against the GDP would be, you know, almost half of what uh, Germany's economy and other economies are paying. Uh, the reason why this matter has risen is because there's been massive GDP growth failure. We're under 1% now. Mm. We're at 09 Next year, the IMF has got us at the lowest of 159 countries. I mean, this is wake-up big-time uh, uh, occasion for New Zealand, and we better get it clear where we're going. So if this country is performing properly, we, we, we wouldn't be looking at the old. We'd be looking at those who are fit and able to do their, make their contribution. When, when the government is formed, um, I don't know if it's a record, I haven't really been able to check, but you will become a minister in a fifth government, fifth time you've been a minister. And on three of those occasions, it's been in MMP governments, coalitions. What, what lessons do you take from your previous experiences in terms of looking at how this government is, is formed? Well, when you say what lessons you take, a uh, very good question in the sense that you take every lesson you've possibly learnt. Uh, but what I most expect and my colleagues most expect is when you shake somebody's hand, they keep their word. They be frank and open. They share information with you that is critically part of the coalition arrangement. They don't hide things from you behind closed doors or go and back behind your back, which was our last experience we finally discovered after the election was happening most of the time. So would you expect to then to have, I guess, open lines of communication? And I just wondered whether you had in the previous government, but open lines of communication in the new government. Well, of course you would expect to have that. And we did have it in previous arrangements. I had it with, uh, you know, um, Heather Simpson and Helen Clark, where simply if there was a problem, then Heather Simpson would get in contact with our head person and sort this matter out. We didn't want to be spending meetings every week when you're flat out and you're busy or overseas and what have you, and it worked like a charm. Helen Clark, uh, God bless her, came out two weeks before the campaign and said so, when everybody else was saying it the very reverse. And so did Jim Bolger. That's what I'm talking about. Shake hands and keep your word. So is that sort of arrangement more important than necessarily, if you like, tying down all the detail of policy? It's as important. As important. But tying the detail down on policy means that you don't have a revisitation and then arguments and then here come the Treasury and here come all the civil servants who by the time they've bogged you down will ensure that the next three years you've done nothing. We can't have that happen. It's time for action.
But is it possible, for instance, in forming an agreement that there are just areas that the parties say, well, we've got to agree to disagree on this and and leave it to one side? And Well, you've got to, if you disagree, you've got to either concede it or don't go along with it. But there's no uh, case of saying, well, I disagree, and you carry on. If you disagree, you've just got to accept that you have lost that argument in that negotiation. Look, as a famous politician said, um, I go into these arrangements in politics itself to get 80% of what I want. Without them, I would get nothing of what I want. So you it, it goes the same now in modern politics. You're going in to get the maximum you could get, which by yourself you'd never get. There's been a lot of talk about whether you will talk to um, David Seymour or not. Is, is well, that's, well, that's kind of mindless media speculation that goes on every day. And it be, uh, I can't understand why. Because circumstances will change this. But at the moment, they're negotiating with the National Party. The National Party is negotiating with us. That's how things are done. And you'll see that people are now uh, in New Zealand First will be talking to ACT members as well. But these are all done in a timely way, not because some mainstream media who didn't want to know who our name was before the election now want to prescribe what we do after it. But, but so many, uh, seemingly at one point or another, though, some of the in, your interests will have to be, I guess, weighed up against Axe interests as National kind of negotiates with both. And yes, of course. And so there'll be a balancing out, will there, of those? Well, see if, there's a, see if there can be um, an alignment. Uh, that's the name, and see where we agree and disagree and see what we've finally come down with, because in the end it'll possibly be the view of two versus three uh, altogether. But that's the way of things. I don't want to prescribe what goes on here, but in the end, none of us are going to get what we all want. Do you, do you, can you see where there are clear lines of alignment? Oh, there's no doubt about it. There's a whole lot of them. As clear as daylight, it's how we get there. But there's a lot of alignment as well um, in the, the three parties' manifestos, so to speak. And that's around issues like the cost of living, health, well, law, yes. and, law and order. Well, I guess law and order three... and a whole, a whole host of things where, which, where so many things were going wrong. I mean, between 2020 and 2023, there was a mess a month. Ministers going down all the time. I mean, it was very, very obvious that... Uh, things were going wrong and we have to have policies uh, where at this point in time we are trawling our way through and saying look there's a lot of things we agree upon here let's get down and get get those things sorted and then some of the things we'll never agree upon but that's the nature of things. Just going back to the, the comment about how mm. many times you've been a minister you'll, you'll be if not the most experienced minister or one of the most experienced ministers in this new government I mean what role would you play? Well, that's up for negotiations as well. <laughs> I can't tell you what that is now, but uh, all those things are up for negotiation if we decide to go down that pathway. How do you mean if? Well, we walk into negotiations on the basis that, you know, you might lose. You might not go there in the end. You go there with the right purpose. But if you want to be true to yourself and there's people who voted for you, you've got to have that view as well. That just may not happen. We'll do the best we can to make sure it happens so if we can. Winston Peters, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. Welcome back to Beehive Banter. Lots of coalition banter happening, lots of speculation. 
Winston berating the media. Although, not so much you, Brent Edwards. I thought you did very well with your one-on-one Winston interview, I have to say. Uh, he wouldn't really walk away, would he? Look, I don't think so. And, and if, you've, if you look at the whole of that interview, most of the interview he's talking about these alignments of interest. I've never seen him be so nice to anyone in the media. He's talking about how the the, the parties agree on quite a few things. But whenever you go into a negotiation, I'd imagine whether it's a political negotiation or a commercial negotiation or whatever, you're surely not going to go in and say, I'm just going to agree no matter what. I mean, you do have to. Oh, particularly if your name's Winston. Yeah, but but you know, you're not going to. Otherwise, you just roll over and say, do whatever you like. So I mean, there's got to be that thing to say if if there's not enough in it for us, we can't agree to it. And but I think having talked to him, and when you then look at the policies all three parties have got that are relatively similar, it's kind of there's enough there. You can think that that you could you can form a government where there would you would get agreement. There is, though, as Winston said, some areas of alignment. Well, that's right. Those areas of you know, on you know, law and order, um, health, uh, government spending—they all sort of want to rein that back. I mean, to, you know, they all have differing degrees and what have you. They've all got tax cut policies, but they've all got different views about what's affordable, when, and where. Well, yes, ask Shane but, Jones that. Yeah. But but also um, things like defence spending. I mean. Acton New Zealand first agree on that. They both intend to increase defence spending as proportion of GDP to 2%. So, yeah, there's quite a lot of... Um, but, you know, the differences, age of eligibility for super, for instance. Yep. Stay at 65, says Winston. The other two want to raise it. But I kind of think that's something that maybe they would be prepared to give away in the, in the meantime. Yeah. Indications, though, the talk's now stretching uh, into next week as well. Now, is that frustration or... Is it, as you and I have talked about, and uh, you mentioned important to get it right? Well, it's important to get it right. I mean, Winston Peters says he thinks the deal can be done within two weeks, so that does stretch into next week and possibly a little bit beyond. He also made the point, kind of veiled criticism really, they could have been further down the track had National really engaged in serious talks before the special but votes But Winston were wouldn't do that. Well, he no, said I he th- wanted to know the lay of the land. Well, we wanted to know how well, much power well, he I had. Think, I think Christopher Luxon really wanted to know the lay of the land because both Luxon and Act Leader David Seymour, I think, wanted to just do a deal with one another. Yeah. So they were hoping... So it was that, never going to happen. That, I know it was never going to happen, and it was... Um, no. So... Uh, let's move on now to Labour and a surprise and not a surprise with Labour this week. Chris Hipkins retaining the confidence of his colleagues with the required constitution vote. And he intends staying the whole three years. Uh, what are the odds of that, Brent? Well, I mean, I think the odds are pretty good. I, I note that um, Peter Dunn um, has um, written this week that, you know, it was the only thing they could do. But he also suggests that maybe Hipkins then might step down 18 months a year out from the election. But what would that do to sort of public confidence about the sense, oh, they're changing leaders again? So, um, Well, there's no real leaders in there, is well, there? Well, there is, and, and I mean... The more important thing, I guess, is what's going to come out of the review of their election campaign and their review of policies. And, you know, everything's up for grabs again, including huh, yeah, tax, well, wealth yeah, tax, yeah. capital gains. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Have they learnt nothing? I'm sorry. All options back on the table, including capital gains, wealth tax, 
nothing off the table, implying, therefore, that they might have won the election if they hadn't ditched that policy? Well, I don't... Look, I think that when you lose an election, and particularly when you lose an election as badly as, as Labor did, I mean, they only got, what, you know, 26 27% of the vote, you've got to kind of say, well, let's have a look at everything again. But I, but I think when they do look at everything again, they're going to find a whole lot of other reasons why they lost that election. Not What they'll find is that for the fact that they didn't have a wealth tax or a capital gains tax, that probably meant that some votes went to the Greens. But it wouldn't have made any difference to the no. overall centre-left vote. So they've, they've got to look at that. Um, but why but, make such a big thing of it? And then when well, he was asked, I know he was asked, yeah, I, but then I, again he came back and he kind of doubled down and said, yes, it's all back on. Well, yeah, like, I'm well. not sure that he's making a big thing of it, but it, but I guess that he, he has to signal in a way he would have heard some of the voices within his own party on tax. Not naming anyone, Parker. But, well, and others within the broader party. So he's kind of signalling to them, look, open to discussion, open to looking at it again. Uh, I mean, I don't think a wealth tax is, frankly, on the agenda, but it's always possible that they could come back with some sort of capital gains tax uh, proposal. But they would need to get that... Um, policy really sorted early and start to, I think as um, the CTU economist Craig Rennie has said, start explaining it, you know, because you can't just leave it to the campaign. You've got to get it in people's minds. How many times do you need to explain it? The people that want everyone else to have it vote for Labour anyway. Yeah, but uh, I I mean, I think though in the previous elections when Labour has lost badly with the capital gains tax, the capital gains tax probably wasn't the reason they lost that election either. I mean, and, and if you look at this um, uh, current election campaign, I mean, clearly they got a lot of um, flowback, if you like, from the COVID-19 response. They got rewarded for it in 2020. They got slammed for it in 2023. Um, so there are things around that they need to do. I mean, if you look at this year, you know, four ministers, losing four ministers in the space of a few months, that can't have done their election chances much good. You know, there's a whole well, host... Well, it didn't. Well, that's right, it yeah. didn't. And speaking of election chances, now Calvin, no longer deputy, replaced by Carmel Cipollone, he didn't really even have the mandate to remain in that position, did he? He lost his seat. Well, he lost his seat. I don't know if that makes a difference, but I mean, Calvin oh, Davis... Oh, sorry, it does. Well, Calvin Davis, though, you know, even though he's been deputy leader, he kind of hasn't, because if you think... He stepped aside to allow Grant Robertson to be Deputy Prime Minister under Jacinda Ardern and then Carmel Cipollone to be Deputy Prime Minister under Chris Hipkins. And he's not really normally, good at poetry either. Normally the Deputy Leader would be the Deputy Prime Minister. He did Minister. say some stupid things. So, so I mean, I think, you know... And, 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 and let's face it, at the time when he was acting Prime Minister, which happened a couple of times in the last three years, he didn't even get, wouldn't even talk to the media. Yeah. Would he? Yeah, but I, but I also think, I suppose from the point of view, you know, you've got male lead and our female deputy leader, that kind of thing, it, it sort of... Oh, so it looks good. Well, it, it does look good, but I think Carmel Cipollone is, is very, very effective Actually, and so competent. So, um, yeah, good point. He, you know, Kelvin Davis, he, he just never seemed comfortable in, in, in the public sort of no. eye in terms of that. Yeah. And as he said, he's a grandfather now, whatever that means. Now, what do we make of the well, treaty referendum? Well, I can tell you what it means, but... You know, no, I know what it means. <laughs> what do we make of the treaty referendum reaction from Willie Jackson? Springbok tour times 10 and people will go to war. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that language, you know, is helpful. But I guess it does It does show up how kind of divisive this issue could be. And I, I mean, and Christopher Luxon has already made the comment that he believes it would be divisive and unnecessary. So is Jim Bolger. So, yeah, absolutely. So, I, I, I mean, I don't think it's going to go ahead. 
So I don't think we'll get to that position. Right, so Calvin and Willie will be gone then, will they? Because Willie and Calvin are going to take six months and summer, respectively, to consider their future. So when Calvin said, for example, if he lost his seat, he would resign, what he actually meant was, at some point in the future, when it suits me, I may resign. But will they resign? Because I'm not sure. I haven't looked at who's, because they're on the list now, so it would be the next people on the list that comes in. He said so, if he lost his seat. Yeah, but I know. But if they resign, I, I think then they weaken the Maori caucus. So they've got, they've got issues. He didn't around. say I'll resign unless yeah. I weaken the Maori caucus. He well, said I'll resign. Yeah. Well, he's actually he's saying he said he resigned, but he wouldn't say when he would resign. But exactly Kelvin, my point. Kelvin Davis, though, I mean, when I'm talking about yeah. Kelvin Davis, but he said he, will, he won't stand, certainly won't stand at the next election. This, if... If he doesn't yep. resign no. earlier. Will Grant Robertson stay? Or again, is it just when? Yeah, that's, um, you know, you hear whispers. I, I'm not sure. He's certainly staying for the uh, next year or so, I think. He, he wants to ensure that Labour is set up as an effective opposition. Whether he goes beyond that, I'm not sure yet. And He's very he, talented. He'll be very good in opposition. Well, he will be very good in opposition. And I, I would imagine you'd, you'd want him to stay on the chances, because one thing that Labor needs to look at in a sense is that while they've been um, demoralised by this... And decimated. Decimated. Yeah, I know, but in 2020, National was decimated even more. Correct. And now they're forming the government. I know. So, you know, it's not, not impossible if Labor got its act together, that, you know, and depending on how the new government goes, and if it goes really well, OK, but if, but if it has some stumbles, it's not impossible to think that Labor could be in a position to form a government in 2026. Sorry, so, I stopped listening about two minutes ago. Yeah. All right, now, no Pacific MPs in government. Now, are there any diversity lessons here, or is it just the way the cards fell according to the people's votes? Well, I think there are some. I mean, know, everything's got consequences, obviously, but it's well, not a good look. you know, the Pacific community do make up a yep. significant proportion of New Zealand population and an important part of um, the country. So I, it probably is, I think, disappointing that there is no representative representation of that nature. I mean, governments are meant to be representative of their people. Parliaments overall are meant to be representative of their people. And I mean, Chris Lif Christopher Luxon has talked about trying to get greater diversity into the National Party. Mind you, you can't and sit there and go, well, if we get that percentage and we get that many MPs and then we get that thing and he gets that, well, then, we, it's, it's then the list will mean only this. It's not necessarily about, like, quotas, if you like, but it is about encouraging people and recognising the strengths that they bring to the job rather than, I guess, looking at it through a a particularly a monocultural yeah. viewpoint. And, and number way. All right. Speaking of voting wishes, recounts asked for Tamaki Makoto, Mount Albert and Nelson. <sighs> what do you think? It's only four votes in one of them, 20-something in the other. Yeah, four mm. votes, Tamaki Makoto. I mean, and the, what, the probably, look, the one seat that, you know, will make a difference, if, if you like, would be Tamaki Makoto. I mean, if Penny Henry wins that back in the recount, yeah. then... To Party Murray lose a seat, they go down to five, so the overhang drops by one seat. Ah, which means, oh, okay. So, I see it back to maths again. Is there any point trying to look towards next week? Because apart from APEC, it's still a negotiation, but will Luxon go or could he not? Well, he won't. Because he needs to go. Well, Can he, he not go and still negotiate from the plane? Well,. You know, this is a meeting of the leaders of the APEC economies. Yes. At that point, if a government, if a new government isn't formed and he's he hasn't been sworn in, he is not the leader. He's not the Prime Minister of New Zealand. No, but so Hipkins is he, not going to go. Well, that well, 
he probably not. Because he might not, have to be resworn. Probably not, but he would have more opportunity to go as the caretaker prime minister because he is actually still prime minister. You can't make any decisions. Can't make any decisions, but you can be there to fly the flag. So um, I, someone will go as New Zealand's representative. I'm just not sure who. But, I'm, I mean, Luxon's made it very clear he really wants to go. And the question is, can they sort out negotiations, be in a position that they would sign a deal Monday, Tuesday, swear them in, and then he could fly off I'm not going to ask you whether that's going to happen. Anyway, that has been High Banter for another limbo week. Actually, some, in some strange way, we've been enjoying the peace and quiet, haven't we, really? It's been lovely. Well, uh, yeah, um, one thing I'd say, caretaker government seems to me to be the um, kind of real vision of a, what a centre-right or right-wing party would want. Government sitting around doing very little. OK, it's time for us to go. Either way, we will or may know more next week on who is foreign minister even and who is deputy PM and who is finance minister. Or we won't. Either way, we'll see you then and we do appreciate you taking the time. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Coalition deal is likely to be struck soon as there is more common ground between National Act and New Zealand First than some might think. To discuss, let's go to MBR's political editor, Brent Edwards. So, Brent, what has been happening on behind closed doors? Well, it's, it's all behind closed doors, so we don't know for sure. We know they've been meeting. We don't know how often. We don't know how long the meetings are la have lasted. As their morning tea. And we, we, and we don't... When we don't no, particularly what are the issues that mm. they're discussing. I mean, we, we can only we have a pretty good guess in terms of when you look at the policy issues that clearly they are going through them, uh, whether they're down to the detail of who, how many ministerial spots, who might get what, that kind of thing, not sure. But, you know, you'd have to imagine they should be getting close to it by now. So what do the parties agree on? Well, actually, you know, more than probably you'd expect. I mean, actually, there's quite a large, and, um, you know, the New Zealand First leader, Winston Peters, made this point in an interview with the NBR about there are actually quite a lot of areas of alignment between New Zealand First, National and ACT when, when you look at their various manifestos and, and policy prescriptions. I mean, for, you know, they, they all want to get tough on crime. You know, they, they all want to sort of rein in government spending. Uh, they've all got a commitment on health and they've, they've also got this commitment to pull back on co-governance. So they'll they'd all get rid of the, the Maori Health Authority, for instance, um, and remove the co-governance part of the Three Waters reform, that kind of thing. But, but more broadly, there's a range of other issues. For instance, New Zealand First um, has a policy on defence spending to increase defence spending to 2% of GDP um, progressively by 2030. Uh, ACT Party wants to increase defence spending to 2% of GDP. Um, there are things around that they'll all scrap the Resource Management Act. And, you know, essentially the sorts of proposals they then have to put up in place are pretty similar. They want um, planning laws in place where, you know, third parties can't object, where it's going to be there's going to be more certain, it's going to be easy to get things through. Um, so, you know, there, there, are, there are lots of areas of agreement. The area was where they might disagree is New Zealand First, it's a very much a strong part of their policy is keep the age of New Zealand superannuation at 65. Don't um, tinker with that at all, whereas both National and Act have policies about raising the age of eligibility for superannuation. Uh, New Zealand First has this um, policy of introducing a sort of a regional um, development fund. 
not exactly the same as the provincial growth fund, but more focused on infrastructure, not long-term infrastructure that, you know, the public infrastructure like highways and what have you, but that would unleash business. And so, you know, there might be, you know, National and Active generally showing a bit of uh, scepticism about that kind of fund before. Why have the talks taken so long? Well, the talks have taken so long, I mean, you know, and this is interesting, but if you listen to, to Winston Peters, it's because the two other parties, ACT and National, were waiting for the special votes. Because, and clearly why they were waiting for the special votes is that they were hoping that by when the final official result came out that they would retain the election night majority they had, even though it was a very, very slender majority, I think one, one seat. Um, but so... When that didn't happen, as everyone expected, if you know, looked at you know, then they need to talk to New Zealand first. But clearly, they didn't get on with the job over the previous three weeks of those negotiations, where they would be in a position to very quickly wrap up a deal. Um, and you know, that, that makes it interesting about how difficult will those talks be? No, you know, because Winston Peters knows neither of those parties want it. Him in government, neither of them modern New Zealand first in government. But he's kind of pretty philosophical and realistic about well, that, that was politics, that, and now. That was then, now is now. They do need them. And so, you know, there's a position there to talk about, well, what, what can you get to forge a coalition? And when will there be an agreement? Well, he, he says within two weeks, so, you know, quite close. And I think certainly the, the National Party leader, uh, incoming Prime Minister Christopher Luxon, has said he would really like to go to the APEC leaders meeting in San Francisco, which is later next week. So... That gives him, you know, a matter of days, maybe up to a week, to try and forge an agreement where he could be sworn in and then fly out to San Francisco to be at that meeting. I mean, that would be a chance to rub shoulders with the likes of US President Joe Biden and other world leaders, you know, at a time when there are some massive sort of international crises, obviously, to worry about, plus other more regional concerns that might that New Zealand has an interest in within the APEC fold. So, um, you know, it's... We'll have to wait and see, but you know, you'd think the impetus should be there. They've, they've got the policy areas that they could really work on and agree on. Um, so, you know, touch wood, maybe early next week we might have an announcement. And what are the pros and cons of rushing it? Well, well, that is the thing. I mean, you know, and I think Megan Peters has made this point. It's not unusual for negotiations to take a long time. If you look internationally, I think he's made the point in Germany it can take up, take up to five months or so mm. or several months to do so. And so that would be one thing is that, um, and he's made this point too, you don't want to rush it and you strike a deal which further down the track you're going to have disagreements about because it's not been put, you know, worked through properly and therefore it causes problems within the coalition, within the government. So I guess all of them would rather take a bit more time and get it right than necessarily rush it and put in place a deal which in the end, you know, a year from now might cause problems among the parties. Brent Edwards, thank you. Members of the Climate Leaders Coalition have reduced their emissions by 3.6 million tonnes over the last five years, according to its latest snapshot report. I'm joined by Coalition Convener and Spark Chief Executive Jolie Hodson and Sustainable Business Council Executive Director Mike Burrell. I know there's been that 3.6 million tonne Reduction, but I think your report also shows over the last two years, 37% of the members though increased emissions. What why is the disconnect there? 
Maybe you stand back and, and look at it. Um, first off, you're right. We have over the five years reduced 3.6 million tonnes, which is not insignificant. And almost half of our members have reduced their emissions in this um, this last uh, year from the prior year. If you look at the ones that have increased, we've seen some uh, return of travel, which has obviously lifted, looking at our membership base within that. Um, we have had some business acquisitions and some growth areas too, where some of the sustainability um, providers are actually helping people to make that journey. So they're doing more work and activity, which is leading to more emissions. And saying all of that, um, we've been tackling the emissions reduction for a period of time. A lot of the lower hanging fruit is, has um, been removed and now we're onto the really more difficult things to tackle. This is a long-term game. We need action now, but the plans and the investments we're making, I think supports that the real um, focus the coalition has on moving forward. So if you look at that period of both current and planned investment, it's 19 billion over the period 2020 to 2030. So that shows the commitment we have as an organize or a group of organizations to really move forward on that transition. What what sorts of things is that money being invested in to reduce emissions? So that's in removing um, legacy technologies. It's also in removing um, or transition from, say, coal base to more electrification in terms of heat processes. It's looking at transport, if you think there's uh, EV fleets, but also diggers, um, jet boats. Our coalition members are actually trialling some of the sort of leading innovations that are occurring. It's also investments going into um, looking at both the agriculture in terms of methane reduction. So we've got the Ag Zero New Zealand JV, public and private coming together in terms of investing to make sure in the research around how do you actually reduce those methane emissions. So a lot of work's going into both changes in operational and assets and things that are needed and, and networks that are needed to support the shift, but also into research around how do we get the technological innovation that we need to be able to move forward. Well, how much though then, uh, maybe Mike, how much are we being held back by the, the lack of technological advance? I mean, what's needed technologically to, you know, I guess, reduce emissions? Hmm. I'm not sure that we're being held back by technological advance. I think you've got to work with what you've got in front of you right now and reduce emissions with what you've got. But there's no doubt that, you know, there's a medium and long-term game here as well around getting that technology. Um, I suppose the big challenges for New Zealand are in those, you know, those four key sectors. You know, it's 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 renewable energy. So making sure that we're investing in that in that grid and, and that it's as green as possible and keeping that that uh, that target of getting that uh, renewable energy as, as, in as quick as we can. That's a big one. Uh, transport. So that's really around electrifying as much as we possibly can, uh, looking at other technologies as well, um, including, um, you know, some of the some of the technologies that we'll need in the freight sector, so hydrogen, for example, and other things like this. Um, then you're talking about process heat, so that's more, moving away from, um, from, uh, from, from gas and from coal uh, towards other technologies. And then ultimately it's about agriculture. You know, I mean, 48% of our emissions are in agriculture. So, and in that area there, those technologies, some of them are available, which is why uh, AgriZero was uh, formed to take those technologies that have been developed offshore, bring them to New Zealand and adapt them to a, a pasture-based uh, ag agriculture system. Um, and, in, and in that area there, we're pretty sure that we can accelerate uh, that reduction uh, around methane pretty quickly. But there's also a whole lot of technologies that simply don't exist yet. And we're well incentivized here in New Zealand to look for those technologies because we are you know, so so uh, much uh, an agriculture-based um, country. So we're going to be leaders in, in that area, which is why things like AgriZero become so important. But if you come back to it, 
those four sectors, that's where 80% of our emissions are. And so, as Ronnie Biggs used to say, you know, why do, why do I rob banks? That's where the money is. Why are we going after those sectors? That's where the emissions are. And so, you know, for us, that's where the focus has to be. The, the report also makes comment about, I guess, the need for, for stable um, legislation, government policy. Obviously, we've got a change of government, a, a new government um, being formed as we speak. Um, but the, the new government is going to take a slightly different approach. I mean, the commitments, I think, are the same. But, for instance, um, the previous, the outgoing government had been involved, I guess, in subsidising um, investments in process heat, for example, uh, the clean car discount. Those are all likely to be dropped um, under the incoming government. Were those helpful initiatives or will it make no difference if they're dropped? I think if you stand back and look at what's important um, for business in terms of as we look at this period ahead it's around that consistency around the architecture so the zero carbon act the climate commission's role within that and um the incoming prime minister elect has already indicated as you've noted that he will um, look to uphold those things so that's important because ultimately consistency around the settings is what will help businesses make the investments they need to and make the changes they need to I think within that we're pragmatic around there are different policy, um, individual policies that the the different parties might have. And our focus is really on um, the outcomes. So if something's been taken away, what else is coming in to make sure that we move to those four key areas, you know, four key areas that need the, the shift. So that would be the approach we would take. So it, it, won't, it won't then have any impact, if you like, on business investment plans. Look, I think businesses have set out their plans. What they look for is consistency, as I sort of noted before, in terms of that. We're good at taking operational risk. We're good at making investment choices, but that's with a clear view on how those settings and policies are laid out. These are long-term investments. They're not something that you're making just for the next 12 months. These are over many decades. So our work will be working with the incoming um, government of and, and then looking at how do those settings continue to stay in place and then we'll make those choices around where we need to invest. Things like you mentioned the Giddy Fund, I think when we stand back from that, um, one of the things we look at with that is it helps to accelerate that removal of coal and other out of the heat transport. So anything that is, or heat, sorry, industrial sectors, anything that's doing though or helps to support that is obviously going to be beneficial to the journey we need to take. Um, and so that's why we'd like to sit down and understand more around as the new government comes in. There's also been criticism around the emissions trading scheme and it's been changed around a bit, created some uncertainty. Do you want to see more stability around the ETS? I think in terms of the ETS, um, you do want stability and consistency. I think there are some forms of reform required to make sure um, that it is one of the tools that can be used in terms of the journey we're going on. Now, Mike, if you wanted to add any more in relation to that. No, I think that's right. And I, I mean, I think the, um, you know, the, the, the reducing lid is super important. You know, um, we, we have to remember what the ETS is there for. It's there for a purpose and the purpose is to reduce emissions. And so um, I think that's really important. I think keeping it as apolitical as possible, you know, arms distance from day-to-day uh, -day, uh, political signals is really important, seeing it almost like the Reserve Bank, you know, in that respect, which is it's looking at the, the medium to long term. And so we need to be standing back and letting it do its job there. Uh, I think that uh, so those I think those reforms are quite important and uh, that, that has been started. We and we support that. Um, but I think also a reminder that 
Uh, the ETS will get us a certain distance, and there's no doubt that price is a really critical element of this. And we, you know, that market, um, that market for uh, carbon is super important here. But it's uh, it's one of those uh, necessary but not sufficient elements. It'll get us a, a way along the road, but we're also going to need other policies, and we're going to need that private sector investment to come in as well. So uh, it's a combination of policies that will that will get us there. Okay, f- five years from now. What are you expecting to be able to report back on in terms of progress? Look, if we set out our ambition, um, if you think in the over the last um, five years, we've lifted that ambition uh, three times. And so our, our next to 2025 looks to bring in both the measurement of scope three, um, which is a more, you know, gets to the more challenging part by supplier and customer and how you're working. So for us, it'll be the ongoing um level of investment that business is doing. It'll be about those reductions that are happening in beyond the scope one and two, how we're measuring and holding ourselves to account. And of course, we'll keep an eye on what's happening with international policy and science as well, because both of those things, that's what's led to our changes that we've had so far in the last um, five years. So we need to make sure that we stay um, abreast of that and that we have that ambition there for us as a collective. And I feel like the business community is absolutely doing that. We are stepping up to the plate with the level of investment um, that we're making and the shifts that we are doing both in products and services, but also the way we're changing distribution networks around the country. All I was going to say is um, maintaining momentum is going to be really critical here uh, because, you know, we started this journey, but we only are are 5% of the way along on it. So I think what I'd like to see in five years' time is a build-up of that momentum so that we are delivering on our promises uh, and um, and growing that, uh, that coalition as well would be a great thing to see in five years' time as well. Charlie Hodson and Mike Burrell, thank you for your time. Thank you. And that's been this week's Live from the Hive. Thanks for listening.